0: The Future of Cities is presented by Katera. Welcome to the Mission Daily. This week, we are previewing our new podcast, The Future of Cities. In Season 1 of The Future of Cities, we dive deep on subjects affecting how our cities are growing and changing. Each episode includes commentary from industry-leading experts, including city planners, technology innovators, government officials, architects, builders, and more. This week on the Mission Daily, we are running the interviews we did for the future of cities in their entirety. Today, we share our interview with Stephen Kieran and James Timberlake. Stephen James are co-founders of the award-winning architecture firm Kieran Timberlake. They are also co-authors of the book, Refabricating Architecture. In this interview, Stephen James told us how prefabricated architecture will reshape cities of the future and how incentives will need to change in order for innovation to take place. If you like what you are hearing, please subscribe to The Future of Cities on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: What's so interesting about the problem-solving techniques that you're talking about is really a shift in mindset. And if you've ever read the book Getting to Yes, one of the key tenets of negotiation is that like compromise is the devil, right? Like the idea that if you are think in a fixed pie mindset, then everything is a compromise is, you know, inherently taking away value from both sides. Whereas like if you have a kind of growth mindset or a mindset where you can create the solutions that you want, then that is can allow you to think of new things to to truly create value for both sides.
2: Yeah. I mean, I just reflecting on great projects over the years, they're often it's often the case where you can't remember where a great idea started. And no one can remember it. And it had to start somewhere, but ultimately everybody lost track of it because it became everybody's idea. And no one individual's property, and it became something else. I think the reason why no one can remember where it started is because it used the intelligence and passion and commitment of everybody involved to make something better than it began. you know those those are great outcomes when you the source becomes nebulous in, in a way and uh, true
3: but in an, in a world of attribution, that flies in the face of the contractor the owner and the architect in terms of their self satisfaction to an outcome and i'm not saying that it's it's wrong it's just that they are often at odds relative to what their own personal self satisfaction as an as a person might be for any particular project and you know I think if you look at the great contractors of the world rather than the great architects people can start naming the great architects of the world you start asking who are the great contractors of the world over the centuries And people would have to struggle with that because it wasn't about necessarily personal attribution. They can name companies. And the companies might be eponymously named, but they are are not necessarily about a singular individual. They are a group, you know, as a group of individuals. You know... uh, I think, Stephen, I've always reflected upon what's right about architecture and what's wrong with architecture. I think that's one of the things that's been wrong about architectural education is that we're taught baby steps early on in our careers that it's all about us. We forget, you know, the myriad of other voices that make up the getting to yes. Yeah.
1: And I, I, I love that idea. And it's a it's a very profound thought because I think that it mirrors with the idea of mass customization and your ideas around kind of mass production versus mass customization where at this point in time, I mean, and I guess you could speak to this, but like how quickly are we getting to the point where someone can flip through a book and choose the different elements that they want in their house or in a project with the idea of, you know, essentially endless numbers of customizations that are possible. And I think just thinking from the tenant's perspective or the user's perspective, I think is really valuable with the idea that they don't know the names of all the people who worked on the project, much like at the end of a movie, you have kind of like all of the, nobody stays for the credits of who the key grips were, but those people are all instrumental in in kind of creating the project. So I guess just talk about the idea of like mass customization And how that affects the end user or, you know, the tenant or whoever is the person that's going to be in that building.
2: You know, by its definition, and in the book we talk about the difference between mass production and mass customization, by its very nature, architecture requires customization that mass produced artifacts like automobiles and aircrafts and ships, basically things that move don't have to necessarily contend with. They do. And there's a certain degree of customization, for but not much compared to architecture. And it all comes down to the fact that buildings are joined to ground, ultimately, to land and to place. And they have some specificity of place across time that the other artifacts that we think of as mass produced do not have. So customization is going to be always, we believe, critical to architecture and a differentiator between architecture and other large, complex things we make that makes architecture way more complex. But the capacity to start to think about architecture, however, as as a frame that has certain commonalities in the way that mass-produced artifacts have certain commonalities that can be customized rather than continually recrafted anew from scratch is an important way forward, we believe. And it's critical to fitting a building to place, you know, to making it perform in terms of where it is climactically. Those are all critical things that we have to do to differentiate buildings from each other based on just where they are. You know, secondly, who are they for? The people inside them. Again, you know, buildings have the need to adapt to individuals in ways that other mass-produced artifacts don't. And we, we have to do it. People are different, institutions are different. cultures are different. So the capacity to think through frames that can be customized for individual circumstances is really, you know, a critical approach here. So we, we believe that customization along with mass, production and kind of trying to find ways to fuse the two into mass customization remains, you know, the holy grail for architecture in a lot of ways. And we're starting to see it develop in the housing markets, I think, first, because there's often more similarity at their core for the types, the building types that we use for housing. And there's a lot of capacity within those types, though, to mass customize. So that's something we're Passionate about exploring and continuing?
3: You know, Steve unpacked, I think, rightly what the kind of current thinking and model is. But I think we're at a point where we have to question those precepts and those concepts. We have to question the notion that architecture is singular and bespoke. And we have to question whether or not architecture can adapt and can be formed and framed in such a way that it provides different circumstances and for different outcomes. So just take the example of a mattress for a second, you know, something really dumb and stupid, but the most comfortable mattress in the world forms itself to every imaginable possible body type in the world under a wide variety of environmental conditions. I think ultimately that's where automobiles are starting to go. They're starting to become these adaptable, almost wearable outcomes. You know, ultimately they're going to be self-driving potentially, but you'll sit in a a self-molding seat, for instance. You'll not be forced to face forward but you'll be able to be comfortable for long periods of time and converse with others and as you move through the environment it will adapt to its circumstances of road condition and you know environmental circumstances ultimately architecture i think could be smart in those kinds of ways as well and i think right now we're we're at the very beginnings of thinking about how architecture can be put together but we're thinking about it in terms of how conventional terms again brick by brick or block by block and not about the smart adaptability of those materials or the application of those in circumstances that would really change how we might think about think about architecture in the future and and so You can't imagine Ronchamp, for instance, by Le Corbusier being anything of its site and its place and its climate and its light and its circumstance, but it doesn't make a great house and it might make a a reasonable place to worship, but that reasonable place of worship might not be very good if picked up and transplanted to South America or Northern Canada or Southeast Asia. Those are the precepts and the concepts that I think we're trying to get all our heads around in terms of trying to adapt. Now, what refabricating architecture is proposing in mass customization and mass production is really still using the kinds of selected choices of a myriad of optioning to get to that sort of bespoke nature that is essentially selected by an individual that customizes that to that particular person. I don't think that's where we're going to be in 15, 20 years or even 50 years from now, where between VR and AI and a variety of other adaptative environmental uh, surrounds, you might be in a green room, for instance, but imagine a very different house on a day-by-day basis. Because you can just imagine it and live in that more virtualized circumstance. Until then, we're working with bricks and mortar and blocks and steel and elements.
1: I think the customization argument is something that, and the mattress analogy is is a great, great point. I mean, I think that we're going to look back back at these days and be like, wait, you went to a store and they didn't have your size? What do you mean they didn't have your size? What's a 34 waist? Didn't you just have it tailored exactly to your specifications? Didn't your shoes just show up? I mean, Nike's already doing that. You can you can get customized shoes. I mean, I think every single aspect of that will be customized in the future. But the idea that, you know, there's, and I forget the exact numbers, but we talked to, you know, folks that were with Habitat for Humanity and Marty Koystra used to be one of their, their directors, but the idea that, you know, they were building a house every, I like think he said, it was like, you know, 12 seconds, a new house was being built. And he was like, except the problem was that the problem was that we needed 90,000 new houses a day. And we were using non-experts to build them. Right. So, so you, so you have this idea. It's like, there's no way that we can achieve the scale of a billion new houses without some level of, mass, you know, productization, but you also, but there are ways to achieve customization within that. And I think that that's, that's the thing that I think people don't really realize what that looks like, because I think we, you know, in America, we're familiar with the idea of like developments, you build a development and, you know, you can, there's a few choices that you can make with that development and they all kind of look the same, but I would say that that's probably the furthest level of thinking that that we put to that. I mean, what do you think those next 15 years looks like or those next 50 years look like? I mean, I guess we could start with 15, but what are those levels of customizations and things that we'll see people being able to choose their, choose their own adventure, so to speak?
3: I mean, first of all, just going back to one of the other analogies is that you can now get bespoke clothing at not bargain prices, but certainly at prices that fit you by just holding your phone up and taking a picture of yourself. And they'll guarantee that whatever you choose and fabric and material and everything else that you choose will arrive to you fitting the way you would have expected that to happen if you had walked into a store and then worked with a tailor for, you know, two settings or you know, or weeks on end. So imagine the tailor now is the architect, and the architect as tailor who used to have you sit across the table from you and you're working with that tailor to, you know, make a home for yourself. Now, the way we're moving and the way this profession has not come to realize itself is that the tools that we currently are using are moving us toward, in some ways, our self-extinction. And that self-extinction In order to meet the housing demand and to meet the markets worldwide, one wants the input of the individual who's going to use that particular home or shelter or circumstance, but have that shelter or home or circumstance arrive to them in a meaningful amount of time. And that meaningful amount of time, whether it's through printing, whether it's through sub assemblies and and choices of of prefabricated elements or whether it's through some other virtualized means you know of dumb envelope but smart ai vr uh interior you know will get us to solving the you know some of the shelter problems that that we have will it solve the church will it solve the museum will it solve the sports stadium will it solve the corporate palace i'm not so sure
2: yeah i i think yeah i mean clearly the critical problem for the foreseeable future remains the housing crisis it's a it's worldwide it's everywhere you turn it's unavoidable in developed cultures and in developing cultures it's everywhere and the volume of it is not going to be dealt with in present uh, you know, using the tools we have available to us now. You know, in terms of approach, you know, probably at its core to really make huge progress fast, there's going to have to be some acceptance of of a common underlying frame and solution in, in many instances that can be customized later on, even after the fact, you know, but get it up, get it going in its most elemental form and stick to the elements of it and customize later or in the field. And uh, we just don't see us getting there. I mean, one example, just take India. You know, 50 million of people a year coming out of CI sheet houses wanting something more. In all of the United States, we produced, you know, like a million and a half units a year of housing. How are you going to get to 50 million a year? How are you going to do it? i mean it requires a radical rethinking of you know of the entire process and probably some sense of a certain degree of mass production of of a basic frame for the housing that gets you the shelter at least at the outset and can be further customized based on circumstances
1: yeah i mean i think that that's a really interesting insight about you know india and that amount of volume with the idea that you could just get them up. You could just, you know, start at a certain place, kind of the minimum viable product kind of idea and get it up and get it useful. And I think that that was some of the stuff that Habitat for Humanity kind of saw initially with the problem, like the means might not have been the most efficient way of building that, but the idea that if you were to build something that started at that point, but was modular, then you could get to the point where we can add on additional things as you go. I mean, we talked to Frank Geiger, of CEO of EIR Healthcare, and their product Med Modular is that kind of idea for hospitals, where hospitals might not have the time, effort, energy, resources, and money to build, you know, the entire scope of you know, the entire hospital at one time or rebuilds. But if you build modularly, then you can add on in a way that makes sense. I guess talk about like the future of modular and how that might be beneficial.
2: You know, I mean, underlying it at its core is a kit of parts that's common and extensible, you know, that dimensionally is already integrated, that has the capacity to integrate systems in it. You know, those are the key things in modularity that really cause problems. If every window has to be a different size, you're just into a whole different world, things like that. So,
3: Here's here's a bigger problem, though, than modularity, in my opinion, especially as it relates to India, but also just relates to solving affordable housing and, and low-income housing worldwide. And that is and this is where the supply chain, you know, and the lack of integration occurs. We're on imperial standards, and you know, two metric, so materials are, are supplied in wasteful dimensions worldwide, and you can get to modularity, in particular, either in the U.S. or you can get it to it in the U.K. through some dimensional circumstances that are common among parts. But in fact, there's an awful lot of waste involved in in all of that. The other aspect is regulation. And I think one of the great hurdles of solving housing worldwide at any level, but particularly at the affordable housing level and low-income housing level, and particularly in India, but also in the United States' is regulation, that between codes which affect how you can Think about building modularly, if you will, whether it's shipping space or whether it's flat packing or whether it's you know panelization or other kinds of things and how those things are integrated. But also just the sheer scale of putting the numbers of units that you need to deliver in a certain amount of time on sites at different places. And I think you can solve the logistics. I think you can solve the supply chain through integration. I think you can solve the mass customization and mass production issue, we're still going to run into the roadblock of regulation and fractured worldwide codes that are going to take bespoke negotiation locale by locale in many ways. And I don't think there's any way around it. Some of those some of those are environmental, but the environmental regulations by far are in some ways easier to over, not overcome, but address than they are the, the kind of individual building code and local municipal code regulations to, to building, which lead to slowing down the process, not speeding up the process.
1: What is the thing that, whether it's a technology or development or mindset, what is the thing that you're most excited about for the future of cities and the future of building?
3: Well, I think data, you know, and it's already here. I think Those cities that are really using data to run their streetlights, you know, manage the, you know, stop and go, managing the flow of people, you know, right sizing services and all of that really is uh, an exciting moment because it means that the design of cities and the and the outcomes aren't necessarily purely about the physicality of things that we react to, but are about the kind of management logistics of commodity and, and circumstance. So, you know, a lot of transit systems are headed in that particular way, you know, and I think that's really, I think that's been helping us to get to greater efficiencies in our cities.
2: Yeah, I I think the thing I'm most excited about is the, the shift in demand on the part of the world population for cities as opposed to other ways of living that question of how to accommodate density in cities i think is one of the most exciting prospects ahead of us and it cuts across everything from how we move about cities to how we live in them and it's going to have enormous impacts we we can already see it across the board in the us where we are becoming more urban or already are more urban than exurban, for the first time in a long, long time. And the changes that have to be made to accommodate that density cut across the gamut and are going to require, you know, real rethinking of urban infrastructure and housing and in urban institutions.
1: I guess kind of final question on this train of yeah. thought is just, why do buildings cost so much? I know we kind of talked about it a bunch already, but just kind of like in a succinct way, you know.
2: I, You know, succinctly, I think it's fundamentally all because of the volume of new systems that we continue to layer into our buildings. And that's fundamentally what it comes down to. A good example, a building a century ago that we worked on renovating really had two systems in it fireplaces to heat the building, and in that case it had some ways to conduct stormwater off the roof to the ground. That was it. That was it. Today, I can name 50 different systems that we wind up putting into our buildings, and 100 years ago, the cost of those systems would have been a couple of percent of the total cost of the building. Today, we build buildings all the time where More than 50% of the cost is in the systems that sustain the building. And we're adding more and more systems every year, literally, to buildings. And that, that to me is the thing that we've not been able to get under control. And the frameworks within which we are putting those systems haven't changed that much. Dimensionally, the human body is still the same size. A lot of the materials we build with are the same size, but trying to integrate The multiplicity of those systems into the buildings is the most complex thing that happens to a building today, is the integration of all the engineered systems together to fit them into the building. So not only do they cost a lot by themselves, the notion of getting them all together, completely coordinated and integrated within our buildings is just flat out the biggest contributor to complexity, cost, time delays supply chain management, everything that kind of conspires to make our buildings cost more and more and more all the time out of all proportion, you know, to the rest of the economy we're in. You know, while we see productivity increases in most other sectors of the economy, construction is infamous, you know, across the world of economics for heading the other way toward becoming less productive every year, meaning you pay more for less fundamentally year by year. And, you know, so that in a nutshell is, you know, my own take on why they cost so much. And
1: that's great. I mean, that, that, that is, that's really well stated. I mean, we've talked to a, a few folks that are in construction that have kind of shared similar sentiments about, you know, the fact that obviously construction is getting less productive and all of that. But I think that that idea that adding the systems is what is making it complex. Like obviously you have, you know, all of the people involved, the subcontractors, and like you said, hundreds of organizations that go into these buildings. But that's a great point that each system that you add probably adds a level of complexity by, you know, a value of N. And therefore, you know, because I think it's just so hard to conceptualize that things would actually be harder now. But when you think of it as, the number of systems is exponentially more, that is a lot.
2: Yeah, and they all have to be somehow squeezed into the same size envelopes. I mean there's huge demand to make things smaller in a lot of ways to cut the cost down, but that only makes it more complex because nobody's cutting the systems out. You still got to do the systems in the in the same area. you know sometimes before we close a building up, when I look at the walls, I go, there's nothing left to close up. It's already closed up by all the pipe and wiring. You know, they define the spaces before you go to close them up. So, you know, it's an extraordinary dilemma. And, you know, I sometimes wonder if the way out of that isn't segregating the two worlds. And, you know, but I can't, you know, see an immediate way to get there. In other words, you build shelter on the one hand that's envelope, and you package all these systems together into something and then just... You know, how do the two come together? And the, the dilemma now is we're trying to fully integrate the two. You know, because everybody wants their electrical outlets spaced at certain intervals, their lighting has to be spaced, fire protection systems have to be spaced. You know, so they're all related to the space fundamentally now. And we haven't been able to see a path to segregate them. So we have to find better ways to integrate. That's a promise potentially of offsite fabrication, you know. It's a good way to shift to a topic of Loblolly House where, you know, fundamentally that house came about because we don't believe in just writing manifestos and refabricating architecture was nothing less than a, you know, a manifesto about the reorganization of architecture and construction and owning and operating buildings. But those houses in a way were efforts to build the arguments in the book and it was difficult to get clients to build the whole argument in the book because buildings cost a lot of money, and there's a limited tolerance for risk. so a house is a good place to start because the risk is limited to the cost of a house, not to the cost of a huge building so so those were op you know basically literally building the arguments in the book. So when you look at a house like Lob Lally House, you should be able to read out of that house all the arguments in the manifesto. And, you know, we, we, we tried to make elements out of the house. We put up an aluminum scaffold that is inherently capable of being rapidly assembled and disassembled. We made off-site cartridges for floors, and put all the systems for the house the distribution of the systems in the floors of the building we tried to keep them out of the walls so that we could make the walls dumb and simple and they were also panelized off site so we concentrated systems in floor cartridges built wall cartridges that had windows integrated with them insulation interior finishes exterior water management and temperature control systems in them. And then we took the complex things that aren't just space, but are really machines like bathrooms and mechanical spaces. And we made those as three-dimensional modules to install them in the frame. So we tried to make the building elemental You know, build and cut everything offsite and assemble it all in the field. And cartridges and blocks slung into a scaffold and erect the house fast. And the house was basically, you know, more or less complete in under a month in the field. But there was a lot of time, in fact, you know, in in a factory up in New Hampshire that went into that in advance. But that was what we tried to do, and we developed. And by the way, the only reason why we could do that was the advent of parametric modeling, solid modeling, which we did borrow, frankly, to develop that house from the aircraft and shipbuilding industries. And that was only at the time nascent in architecture. So we had to literally build every element of that house from scratch as a solid parametric model. But what that allowed us to do was it allowed us to be certain that we could build everything and cut everything off site and that every aspect of it would come together in an integrated way on the site at the right size. And that sounds you know, like a trivial problem, but it's not. The reason why most architecture has historically been built sequentially is so you could put up one thing, then measure it, and build the next thing that goes into it sequentially. So the, the fact that we can completely model a building with complete certainty was critical to, you know, being able to build that house. And that became the controller of the house in a way was that model. And we used a model for supply chain management, you know, for everything. So we really tried in the house to imitate methodologies developed from automotive manufacturing in architecture to develop something that was Custom crafted to a particular site, but so we could spend the least amount of time possible on the site erecting the dwelling where it's most subject to things that we can't control, like weather delays, material arrival delays, and shipping delays, things like that. We tried to assemble as much as possible off site and have everything ready so that when we got to the site, we could be swift about the final assembly of it
1: and the final result was a beautiful house that is covered in wood paneling it's almost looks like it's part of the trees in fact there is i believe there are actual trees growing through you know a center panel of the house right and it's this like gorgeous it's almost like a tree house that you know is up on stilts and we'll we'll publish photos in the mission but the idea that you could create something so gorgeous so amazing in a month on site That, you know, you imagine if there were neighbors, you know, in this location, there's not a neighbor right next door. But if your neighbors watch this thing happen in a month, that something could be created so quickly, so beautifully. I mean, I think it's, it's pretty remarkable that from just a visual standpoint that that could be the future like things like this could be the future i mean how could it be i mean how how could stuff like that happen in individual sites around the country or around the world
2: i mean the the least productive place to build is on a, a site it's kind of like when you arrive at the site today you have to set up almost a custom factory to put up the house so i think what is extensible and what we're we're learning through these ongoing exercises that we continue to explore is the idea that if you can completely model a building and then fabricate, say, on the order of 80 to 90% of it somewhere else in factories and get all the parts ready, at that point in time, you limit your time and money risk because you've got all the parts ready and can assemble them on the site quickly. So that's an extensible idea that we could, you know, literally no longer think of the site as a factory, but think of, architectural production factories that produce integrated floor cartridges with systems in them, that produce walls that have the windows in them, the insulation, everything in them, produce bathrooms, produce kitchens, produce mechanical spaces, and have all those parts arrive and be assembled rather than constructed on the site. You know, so th- that's that's an extensible idea, we believe. And we're seeing, by the way, aspects of that idea – taking hold across the industry. You know, when we built Loblolly House, well, let's let's go back a little bit further. Just 15 to 20 years ago, most curtain walls, glass curtain walls on buildings were built stick by stick and then glazed on site. Now, those walls are all built in factories as integrated assemblies, fully glazed in large panels that are lifted and craned onto buildings on site. So we're starting to see some of the provocations, you know, we articulated less than two decades ago in refabricating architecture. We're starting to see a lot of that coming to fruition in incremental ways across the industry and in more holistic ways, frankly, with houses and housing.
1: Well, and the technology, the the software, you have those plans, right? So like not only... Like you have all of the institutional knowledge from building it, but you also physically have the technology that you could say, hey, we did this. This is the exact specifications of this. And you have that and you can kind of almost, you know, save, drag and drop that file and say, you know, Lolly house, you know, number two.
2: Correct. You know, and we could customize from that model. A huge amount of effort and energy went into building that model. You know, to give you a rough idea, because solid modeling didn't exist, parametric modeling, we had to build every single piece of hardware in that as an item. You know, it took about 2,000 hours or so to build the parametric model for that building. That could be done today in a fraction of that time. Manufacturers provide products to you with solid models of them that you can import into a drawing set so there's there's been enormous change on that front that is dramatic and really shifting industry so
1: shifting gears here to the final question do you have a do you have a few more minutes yes or?
2: yeah I've got about five uh, more minutes
1: okay great so what was the cellophane house and how did this idea come about
2: okay that it's interesting my son we, we had done back around 2003, a pavilion at the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum in New York. Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum is part of the Smithsonian. But it was called Smart Wrap. And it was an idea about a building skin that could be printed, could have printed functionalities on it. So this is the ultimate vision of integration. We took PET plastic. It's a plastic commonly used for Coke bottles and things like that. And we printed on it circuitry Printed ink circuitry, and we used printed organic light emitting diodes on it. They were small at the time, 15 years ago, kind of phone screen sized. We projected the idea that we could connect to those printed organic photovoltaics, organic solar, also printed on the film, along with the projection of an idea of printed battery storage on it. So it was an idea of basically a, a printed building envelope that could collect energy from the sun, move it through printed circuitry to batteries where it could be stored or to lights that could project light. So it was an idea about a building envelope. And we kind of married that to Loblolly. It was kind of the love child between smart wrap and Loblolly in a way is what became cellophane house. So because it was in New York City next to MoMA, we decided to go high with it. So we wanted to show how high we could go with a scaffold system structurally. And we went five stories with that. At Lob it was really only two stories. So we went high with it, but we used the same elements, an aluminum scaffold frame, a German aluminum scaffold frame. And then we wrapped it in a version of smart wrap that had printed circuitry photovoltaics on it so the idea was that the skin of the house would become part of the system of the house that we would use the same reconfigurable scaffolded frame the whole house glows the floors are translucent even so you know we just pushed a whole host of ideas to an extreme in the case of that museum exhibition to test all those ideas together the field erection of that building was the modules were all lifted into place in a week so we built them over in New Jersey in an off-site plant then you have to ship them in the early hours of the morning into New York City stage them on the street and we craned them all into place in a little more than a week and then we finished the whole of the fit out of the house over the ensuing two weeks but that was a three-week enterprise to put it up and we took it apart and disassembled it all in a week at the end of it. So it's a good example of rethinking the concept of housing. You know, one of the realities of houses is they, they don't become unviable over time because of the materials in them. Even wood buildings can last for centuries. They, they become unviable because of where they are and because of real estate cycles related to land. So one of the ideas we're looking at in all these structures is, if the materials are still good, why are we demolishing them and wasting them? Why can't we build build our houses in demountable ways so that they can be relocated and the materials can be completely reclaimed rather than landfilled? So that was an idea that was present in both Loblolly and um, Cellophane House, and it's a huge idea environmentally about in pure carbon terms, if you convert energy to carbon, the materials that go into the making of each of those houses equals about 40 years of operating energy required to operate them. So if we can reclaim all of the energy that goes into those materials again and again and reuse those materials, we're saving huge amounts of energy. So that was an important environmental agenda. Yeah, and we, we think it's, it's really important, you know, because the devastation that goes on in our own city of Philadelphia because of neighborhoods that become unviable and the cost to the city of trying to keep those up, ultimately demolish them and take them down, it's enormous. So if we could rethink how we house ourselves as something that can be, you know, basically assembled and disassembled and relocated, if particular areas become unviable, and, and we can't predict how cities are, how portions of cities are gonna be viable or not into the future. We just can't predict which industries are gonna thrive and which aren't. And all industries have their place in time. So if we can flex our housing along with the jobs in ways that are more rapidly reconfigurable, we think there'll be huge environmental positives for all of us. I mean, the vast majority of our cities are housing. It's a huge proportion of the total building. So, you know, I'm sitting in an old beer bottling plant right now that is our office. But around all of the factories that that used to line the Delaware River, including this one, this is one of the few that's left. And these factories had in between them row house after row house after row house, 20 miles up along the river row houses. And when the factories left, the houses left with them, the people left, you know, they weren't viable. So if you think about being able to flex a city across time in ways that you could just move the housing rather than trash, well, abandon first and ultimately demolish the housing, you know, that could have huge consequences.
1: That's amazing. I mean, that's really zero waste. You know, we talk about zero waste buildings, but that, I mean, that is truly zero waste. Well, Steve, I, I just can't thank you enough for your time. I really appreciate it. And it's been awesome talking to you and, and to James and really just, you know, this stuff is exciting for us and we're just happy to share your story.
2: Well, we've really enjoyed speaking with you, Ian, and we do hope to have uh, an opportunity for further conversation with you So So thanks very much. much. Excellent. Thanks
1: so much. And yeah, we'll talk soon. Thanks.
2: All right. Bye now.
3: Thank you to our friends at Katera. The multi-trillion dollar global construction industry is ready for change. Katera's end-to-end team is joining together from different industries to innovate the future of building. Learn how you can join their growing team at Katera.com or click the link in our show